please join me in the prayer for illumination. Holy God, author of the Word made flesh, to whom belongs the first word and the last, bring to us your spirit, that as your word is proclaimed, we may be comforted, convinced, and changed. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whose glory still shines brightly. Amen. A mountaintop experience from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you, and whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through Scripture. Thanks be to God for the written word in Scripture and for the living word of Jesus. A mountaintop experience in the New Testament. In the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up! and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through Scripture. Thanks be to God for the written word of Scripture and for the living word of Jesus. Allow me to ask a faith question that I promise is not rhetorical in nature. It is not accompanied by any presupposed response. The faith question is this. Have you ever experienced what felt like the presence of God in a way that was so unique and so profound that it almost seemed unreal? 
as though time were being frozen in a moment, all because of the proximity of something that felt holy or divinely mysterious. Have any of you ever experienced a moment like that? Perhaps some of you have, perhaps others of you have not. I remember attending a church retreat, a weekend retreat, when I was a, uh, maybe in 10th grade, maybe 11th grade. And on the final night of that weekend retreat, we held a special worship service outside on a hilltop around a campfire. And something about that worship service ushered me into what I can only describe as transformational space, spiritually speaking. And it is beyond what I can analyze. Maybe it was the simple songs that we were singing accompanied by guitar. Maybe it was the scriptures that were read or the prayers that were prayed or the brief message that we heard. Maybe it was the mystical impact of celebrating the Lord's Supper around a campfire. Or maybe it was the Holy Spirit weaving all of those various threads into a tapestry of revelation that was beyond anything that I had ever experienced. All that I, all that I know is that something happened. I felt unsettlingly and strangely close to the divine in those moments of worship. I felt as though I knew who Jesus was and Jesus knew who I was and the two of us were bound together in a relationship that was as intimate as it was sacred. And can I tell you, it felt good. It felt good for this adolescent soul desperately trying to find his place in the world. It felt good. The worship service ended and people started to make their way down the hilltop and I stayed right where I was. I remained by that campfire. I didn't move. I didn't move until a couple of the counselors came and practically had to drag me back to the cabin. I didn't want the moment to end. I shared that experience with a friend of mine who happens to be an atheist and uh, his response was this, Eric, with all due respect to your faith, I see that experience as little more than the fabrication of an adolescent soul that desperately needed to believe something was out there. And I appreciate that perspective. I appreciate that interpretation. But I interpret it differently. I believe that I was experiencing an engagement with the divine heart. I've come to call it over the years a transfigured moment a moment in which time and perception were somehow reconfigured in my presence so that Jesus became brighter, clearer, closer than he had ever been to me before. A transfigured moment. And I begin with that experience because the scripture that we heard moments ago from Matthew's gospel compels us, in a sense, to take transfigured moments seriously. The situation in scripture is this, Jesus calls upon three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to accompany him on a trip up the mountain. And by the way, those of you who are students of scripture will understand this already. But whenever the Bible introduces a mountain to the story, pay attention, because strange things tend to happen on biblical mountains. Divine commandments are delivered on mountains. False prophets are exposed and vanquished on mountains. 
Jesus offers his most famous sermon where? On the Mount. Whenever the Bible introduces a mountain to the story, it is often an indicator that significant uh, divine activity is on the immediate horizon. And this mountain, the mountain in today's gospel is no exception because on this mountain, we are told that Jesus is mystically transfigured in the presence of his disciples. We do not know exactly what transpires and we would do well not to invest a great deal of our energy attempting to ascertain the details of what it looked like or what it sounded like. We don't know. If you're somebody whose belief system leaves plenty of space for literal, mystical uh, spectacles, have at it. Have at it because this is one of those scriptures that invites that. If, on the other hand, your skepticism prevents you from traveling too far up that particular mountain, if you can't bring yourself to believe in the literal details of Jesus' transfiguration, my only encouragement is not to back away from the biblical text too quickly because the bottom line is that something happens on that mountaintop. Something happens. Something happens that deepens the disciples' convictions concerning who Jesus is and what he was here to accomplish. Something happens that transfigures Jesus in the consciousness of the disciples in such a way that they are freshly awakened to the dynamism the dynamism of who Jesus is. It's interesting that at one point in this transfigured moment, um, the disciples become aware that Jesus is suddenly shooting the proverbial breeze with two additional figures who seemingly appear out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah, two heroes from the Hebrew scriptures, long dead, but somehow conversing with Jesus on that mountaintop. Why would they be there, Moses and Elijah? Why would they figure prominently in this moment of transfiguration? Well, think with me about that for a moment. Who was Moses? Moses was the leader of the people of Israel to whom God had delivered the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are at the heart of God's law. Elijah, by contrast, was that dynamic prophet who defeated the prophets of Baal in yet another mountaintop experience in the Hebrew scriptures. So here is the point. Jesus is participating in what, what, what we might describe as a summit meeting with Moses, who would have called to mind the law of God in a significant way, and Elijah, who would have called to mind the prophetic tradition. And since it is Jesus, who is participating in this conversation, the clear implication of scripture is that Jesus is the one who fulfills both the law and the prophets, which is to say, Jesus is the one who finishes the work that Moses and Elijah have begun. And so in terms of theological significance in the biblical narrative, this moment of transfiguration serves as both a um, revelation and a validation of Jesus' identity, a revelation and a validation of the dynamic and vibrant reign of God breaking into the seemingly ordinary moments of a mountain hike. The poet, Mary Oliver, writes these words, to pay attention, 
to pay attention. This is our endless and proper work. And I agree with the poet, especially as it relates to Christian discipleship. In fact, the older I get, the more I am convinced that the foundational spiritual discipline of a Christ-shaped life, the foundational spiritual discipline of a Christ-shaped life is the spiritual discipline of paying attention. Because the truth of the matter is, the transfigured moments still occur in the human pilgrimage. Perhaps not on literal mountaintops, perhaps not always with fanfare and spectacle, and certainly not with the kind of guest list that Jesus enjoyed during his transfigured moment. But I am absolutely convinced, and I'm speaking to you from my heart when I say this, I'm absolutely convinced that moments still occur when eternity intersects with the everyday in a way that freshly illuminates the nearness of God and the nature of God's redemptive work. And that is why it is so critically important for people of faith to cultivate the spiritual discipline of paying attention. And that sounds so extraordinarily simple when we say it, doesn't it? Well, of course we pay attention, but I suspect that you've discovered, as have I, that paying attention in this world is sometimes the most difficult spiritual discipline to practice. And I've come to think about the church in this regard, that the church at its best is a community of notoriously distracted people helping one another and encouraging one another to pay attention to the things that matter most. So that when these transfigured moments occur, we're able to recognize them for what they are. We're able to experience them deeply and sometimes in a way that changes lives and trajectories. I've also come to learn over time that these transfigured moments will frequently occur when they are least expected, sometimes in the midst of profound suffering and heartbreak. I'm thinking, for example, of a man whose name is Jochen Tallis. And Jochen is the founder of a uh, publishing service in Istanbul, Turkey. And last week, after hearing about the earthquake, Jochen's initial response was to want to drive to the most devastated areas simply for the purpose of providing whatever tangible assistance he could provide in the relief efforts and in the recovery efforts. But after the reports came in of deep snowfall and damaged roads, Jochen changed his focus. And for the next 48 hours, Jochen and his wife made contact with faith communities and agencies throughout Turkey in order to help organize the local response in an effort to provide medicine and blankets and food and baby formula and diapers and supplies to the most afflicted areas. On this side of eternity, Jochen said during an interview last week, on this side of eternity, Nothing is clear right now. But there was a moment, he quickly added in that interview, there was a moment. A moment when I looked into the tear-filled eyes of a dear friend who lost loved ones in the earthquake. And in that moment, Jochen said, I saw it. 
You saw what, Jochen? What did you see? In that moment of looking into the tear-filled eyes of my dear friend, I saw the weeping eyes of Jesus. I felt his tears streaming down, joining ours, and I heard in the depths of my soul the whispering voice of God declaring that this ugly mess of death and suffering would not be the end of my people's story. Now, I know that there would be those who would be inclined to say that Jochen's experience was a little more than the fabrication of a desperate soul, wishful thinking, sentimentality. I understand that. I choose to believe something different. I choose to believe that transfigured moments are real, that they still occur, and that sometimes they occur in even the profundity of human suffering, if for no other reason but to remind people that the God of the universe is still near, not orchestrating our suffering, but standing with us in the midst of it, not causing earthquakes, but redeeming their aftermath. It's an interesting thing that not a half an hour after reading through that interview with Jochen, um, I saw a photograph that I suspect many of you have seen. It's a devastating photograph. It's the photograph of the Turkish father wearing an orange coat holding the lifeless, hand, the lifeless hand of his deceased 15-year-old daughter who was crushed beneath falling rubble during the earthquake. And as I sat there in the comfortable silence and safety of my living room, looking into the face of this devastated father, I was overwhelmed by a thought that seemed to come out of nowhere. And the thought was this, Eric, as you look into the face of this heartbroken father, you are surely looking into the very face of God, a vulnerable God, a devastated God, a heartbroken God, who gently holds the hands of those who die and those who are suffering and whispers afresh into the depths of hurting souls that death is never given the final word to speak, ever. As I looked into the face of that heartbroken father, I had this overwhelming sense that I was looking into the very face of God. I suppose it was a transfigured moment that I experienced that day and one that I desperately needed, if for no other reason, but to be reminded of what the heart of God is really like. See, Peter, James, and John experienced this transfigured moment on the mountaintop that functioned as a revelation and a validation of the identity of the one they were following the one to whom they were in the process of giving their lives. 
And the good news for us, and I hope that it falls upon your heart as good news, the good news for us is that God is still in the transfiguration business. This God we worship is still about the work of taking hold of ordinary and sometimes heartbreaking circumstances and reconfiguring them by the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that they become unexpected engagements with the divine heart. And so when those transfigured moments happen in your journey, and I believe they will, when those transfigured moments happen in your journey, be available to them, be receptive to them, and by all means, pay attention. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen.